Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. The world faces a series of what increasingly seem like existential challenges in the sense that solutions are fundamental to how, and maybe even if, we continue to prosper or even survive as a species. Pandemic, climate change, food security top the list, but it's a long list. And there are no shortage of Cassandras who think we will fail. The good news is that we live at a moment of enormous scientific and technological discovery and innovation. But are we smart enough to translate those discoveries into tangible benefits? Can we innovate faster than pathogens mutate or accumulated emissions change weather? Can we figure out what is best done by the public sector or the private sector or invent new forms of cooperation without destroying democracy in the process? My guest today sits exactly at the intersection of cutting edge science and the demand for innovative solutions in healthcare, biotech, and material sciences. Livio Valenti, welcome to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you for having me, Alan and the team. Livio, you describe yourself as a sustainability entrepreneur. In practical terms, I think that means you're in the business of getting new ideas, products, and processes from the lab to consumers. How do you do that? I discovered that there is an incredible wealth of scientific innovation that is sitting somewhere somehow in a lab around the world. And um, the incredible pace of innovation sometimes get hidden in the process of publishing results or getting to the next innovative idea. And that's where we come in. We come in at the intersection between science, entrepreneurship, and how do we link those two different worlds? And how do we make sure that the innovation that is developed by some of the world's fantastic innovators at the bench gets to benefit everybody because science alone and innovation by itself is completely meaningless if it doesn't help people that need it the most. So we try to fill that gap and we try to play that bridge between those two different worlds. Let's get practical. You co-founded Vaxus Technologies, which could not be more relevant to some of the challenges produced by the ongoing pandemic. What does Vaxus do and, and how are you building it? We started with a pretty simple understanding of a big inefficiency in the healthcare sector, which is very, very simple problem. You're trying to make vaccines that are not able to get to people that need it the most. Most vaccines need to be refrigerated. It needs to be administered with a needle, with a syringe. And it's actually very hard to get those vaccines to people that need it the most, especially in places where it's very hot, when the logistical challenges are so complicated and become insurmountable. So what we decide is that we wanted to spin off a novel technology that was developed in one of the best academic labs, I argue to say, in the world, to kind of you know cut short those problems and saying, what if we didn't need a vaccine that needs to be refrigerated? What if, if this vaccine can be administered with a patch that goes into your skin and you don't need a needle and syringe? And what if it's the size of a postage stamp and now you can send it to everyone around the world, doesn't need to be refrigerated, and maybe people one day will be able to administer 
by themselves. So that's what we've been working on for about almost almost 10 years now. Um, the company started around 2012, 2013, and it's a long journey because obviously we're trying to, to bring science to become a product. And um, that's what we've been focusing on for, for, the past, for the past almost 10 years at this point. It sounds almost like science fiction as opposed to science. Is it possible? Do you think this is a journey that will succeed? Those are obviously tremendous benefits, would transform the healthcare system, not just in the industrial world, but far more importantly in the global south. For entrepreneurs, um, you know, like me and, and my co-founders, um, we, we obviously, we're very optimistic and we think that this is going to be, you know, a, a short journey when we started. And many people told us that if we knew how difficult this would have been, probably we wouldn't have started. So I think there is some degree of naivete and that's also part of, of why some big companies are not trying to do these type of things, right? And there is a lot of people that are, are not even started on the first place. And, and we believe it's possible, even if it didn't happen in the past. Many people tried it in the past and failed for different reasons. And we're lucky to build on the initial knowledge that was developed by others. Um, for our investors, they see a little bit differently. You know, if this thing works, it's fundamentally going to change the way that drugs and, and medicines are distributed. So as a huge financial upside. On the other hand, for global health organizations like foundations that funded us all the way, they see an opportunity to invest in some of these fundamental platform technology that can be applied to many different, different areas. So there is a convergence of optimism around this technology. Some come from the entrepreneurs itself, the team that started this, this organization. Some come from the investor that give you the confidence and, and the fuel to, to continue the work. And when the investors are hesitant, the foundation steps in. When the foundations are hesitant, the investors step in. So there's been a loop of like support. Um, there has been overwhelmingly positive. So we're not the only one to be optimistic. And I think that the company has been, you know, really empowered by a lot of different people at different levels, from the financial standpoint to the people that are joining the organization for the main reason it's really trying to tackle this global health challenge. And we're fighting for talent. You know, we're based in Cambridge. Everyone and, you know, Moderna is sitting a couple of miles away from us. So there is a lot of competition for talent. And one of the biggest things that we're very proud of is that a lot of the, the young scientists that are graduating from, from some of the top universities, they are deciding to come work for us. We are about 30, 35 people at this point, And everyone is motivated, obviously, by, by the challenge of technology, by the scientific complexity of it and all the different aspects. And we span from chemistry to you know, mechanical engineering to human factor design. There's a lot of elements. And so people join because of that challenge. And they also join because they know that they can be part of, of a revolution in terms of how do we distribute those, those vaccines everywhere. And, um, and I think now everyone is aware of the importance of, of such technologies that, you know, we're all being locked at home for a while. Um, and the vaccine distribution is one of the biggest challenges. So 10 years is a long time, uh, particularly for younger engineers, some of the people that you just described as being attracted to the problem and the process, and obviously the environment you're building. How do you keep people motivated when you're not, it's not that you failed, but you've not yet succeeded? It would seem to me motivation becomes a, a real challenge. Yeah, I think I want to reframe that a little bit in a sense that 
it's interesting for me that I'm the impatience uh, in the team, right? I'm the only one that is not a PhD scientist, that is not an engineer. So I always want data. I'm like, where is the data? Where is the data? Is it successful? Is it working? Is it not working? And my scientific team is teaching me every day that science is a process of discovery that requires iteration and it's a very long process and it's very complex. So it's quite, it's quite incredible to see that scientists are really trained to work in these super complicated problems and they're not afraid of failure. Experiments can fail. Experiments can provide the input for the next experiment. So I think I've been learning a lot from the scientific rigor that our team is, is focusing on. And there is no good or bad experiment. There is a process that is leading to the right direction. So in our case, I feel they are the ones that are motivating me more than the opposite because they're used to this type of process. And people have spent five, six, seven, ten years trying to research something in a lab that, you know, has some fundamental implication or might not have some fundamental implication. And sometimes experiments fail. PhD are designed to go deep into some sort of complicated scientific question. And um, my team and the team at, at Vaxes has been really teaching the non-scientific team on how to handle this type of non-binary results and um, it, it's a discovery process and we're trending in the right direction and we're making incredible progress we are almost ready to get into the human clinical trials which is obviously a big milestone for any biotech company so we're getting ready for that so um you know wait and see and, and we'll have some good news in the next few months so when you say you're getting ready for it that's incredibly promising that says that the, the basic thing you're working on works in the lab, works perhaps in animals, and you're ready for human, you're soon ready for human testing. That's fabulous. Yeah, the company is undergoing an incredible change right now because obviously we are building up to that clinical entry, which is, again, one of the most meaningful inflection points for, for any biotech. We've been working so hard for, for, for so long trying to get all these systems in place. And obviously it's a different type of work. It's a different type of company that we're building because it's not about, as you said, building the scientific proof that these things can work. Now it's about how do we do it you know, in a way that is replicable, that is safe, and the rigor that goes into those type of trials, it's, it's incredible. And, and seeing this firsthand, it's a big reassurance to the process that goes into approving a new medical countermeasure, new vaccine or a new drug. So it's actually quite refreshing to see how difficult this is and how reassuring is that there is a very, very good process in place that ensure the safety and obviously the efficacy of, of, new, of new products. Um, so we're planning this clinical trial in the next, again, few months and, um, and we're going to see the results uh, in 2022. Let's widen the aperture, uh, both at Vaxis and in your other uh, activities. How do you prioritize which challenges you take on? How do you decide what's the next project? What's the next challenge? Yeah, I think, as you mentioned in your introduction, Alan, I think the list is very long. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to what you're seeing firsthand and what is the thing that it's really more evident to you as as someone that wants to solve a problem. And then you have different ways to solve problems, right? I mean, my first career, when I started my career around 22, 23, I thought that the best way to solve those big problems was working for international organizations, like the United Nations. What is better than the United Nations to solve 
the type of big problem that every young person want to tackle, right? I mean, climate change, you're thinking about, you know, peace and, and stability of different developing country, economic development. So at the beginning, I thought that was my way of, of trying to do it. And then slowly, I think, um, when I moved to the U.S., I realized that there might be a different way. There might be kind of like a shortcut, if you will, and using technology and science and trying to do it with a very lean organization, something that is very, very fast. And I think prioritizing is not a big problem because all these problems that you mentioned are a huge problem. Just a matter of how do they emerge in the priority list and how are we addressing them? Now, obviously, infectious disease is the top of the list because we're seeing how difficult that is. But who are the people that were thinking about this like 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Who are the people that invested in, in Moderna in those type of platforms like 10, 15 years ago? And those are a handful of organizations that have the long-term view and they have the strategic insights into investing in those different technology that could one day literally save our lives, as we're seeing today with, with billions of people receiving mRNA vaccines. The other thing that... I thought it was a very, very shocking. Um, it was that the food system is really broken, right? You're thinking about how much food is wasted every, every day, every year, how many countries are impacted by the, the food prices, by the inability of searching food, by climate change. So again, there should be a way to address that. So I thought that there was another very important, very important challenge to, to tackle. And, um, you know, what is best then if you cannot produce more, maybe you can waste less. And there is now like big movement around agriculture technologies that is pretty new. I mean, we're talking about four or five years and some people, some scientists, 10 years ago were thinking about this and their technology were able to provide some, some solution to that problem. Now we're seeing so many companies and so many startups and so many efforts aimed at reducing food waste and increasing stock of food, providing, you know, better whether fertilizer, things that, you know, maybe they don't pollute. So there is tons of innovation in this field. And I think that's, that's very, very relevant. And climate change, now it's on top of the agenda and, and the global warming and the fact that the world is becoming more and increasingly, you know, uh, more arid. And how are we going to grow our food when we don't have arable land? So who is working on those technology today will be, you know, someone very successful in the future. So I try to work um, to identify who are, who are those innovators that are really at the forefront of the future technologies that maybe 10 years from now can save us again. And that's a little bit of my, my you know, side work that I, I try to keep an eye on, on those innovators and, and build relationship with them and, and trying to see what, what else can we do for the next big challenge. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. What is the role of intellectual property in all of this? There was a lot of opinion a few months ago that the uh, coronavirus vaccine should come off, uh, IP should come off patent, and that would supposedly produce more vaccine faster. Uh, that conversation seems to have quieted again. 
should intellectual property be protected on such public goods? And, and, and do you need that protection in order to successfully do what you're trying to do? Yeah, there is few few elements to that. I think you're talking to someone that, you know, I came I come from that public sector background, right? I I work for, you know, public organizations and I have a big belief that the private sector has one role to play, but the public sector has another, probably even bigger role to play. And I think those two can work together. And um, specifically on the intellectual property side, I think there was some noise around um, whether there should be IP lifted on mRNA vaccine, which I think it was a little bit of a superfluous discussion in the sense that those vaccines are really, really difficult to make. So you almost make the conversation kind of pointless. It was more philosophically about should we have IP or not? But specific on mRNA, it's not that you can just take the recipe and make a three-star Michelin in it, right? And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, okay, what is the recipe? Now you have the recipe, you have step-by-step. Can you do, you know, uh, what Massimo Bottura would do? And I don't think you can, Alan, and me neither, right? So it's a little bit an analogy to that, obviously, simplifying things a lot, but just to give a sense of how those mRNA vaccines are complicated in nature, the supply of the raw materials is actually very hard to find and very hard to, to procure. So it's not that you can handle the recipe to a, like a global manufacturer, like in a developing country, like in India or in other countries, and, and you will have millions of, of vaccines that are safe and effective. If you want to follow those high standards, it's very, very hard to do. Then if you're asking me, can someone in you know, Russia make a vaccine? Yes, you can, but it's not going to be the same standard of safety and rigorous testing that you have following the United States FDA. So I think for what we do, intellectual property as innovator is, is a fundamental component for what we do. No one will give you credit without that. <laughs> like, and, you know, like investors are looking for three or four things when they invest in, in a startup, right? I mean, that's one is the team, obviously. One is the technology and the science. One is the data that you have, maybe some initial animal data. And one is the intellectual property protection. So those are the four pillars that you need to have in order to, to spin off a company. And, you know, so it, it's very important to have that. Having said that, can you make a vaccine that is cheap, that can reach people around the world? Yes. Can you make a company? Can you build a company that doesn't have to maximize the profit, but can maximize public health? Yes, you can. And I think we're trying to build a model to show that it's possible. And vaccines, I think, it's trending in that direction because we are... You know, we raise around, let's say, $60 million. I would say half and half came from, you know, public sector and half came from the public sector. So at the end of the day, who invests in you kind of has to say something about where you go, right? Uh, who give you credit, again, has something to say about where you're headed. And so I think if there is more public funding going into organization that pursuing a public interest, I think it's a very positive thing because you can have a poor seat, you can have some rights to decide where the technology is going, you can have some say in how to maximize the impact of, of the technology you're investing. So I think it's, it's a good way of, of thinking about it without completely you know, neglecting the intellectual property side that would kind of you know, make it impossible to even start. But then you can, you can find ways to, to make sure that the technology doesn't go in, in the wrong hands. And in that sense, you can still have a big reach and you can get to people that 
needed the most. So the public sector government is part of the solution, but clearly you're thinking about different ways to combine public money, private money, incentives, uh, outcomes, and so forth. In the United States, we have DARPA, which has been an innovation driver over a long period of time. The Europeans are now building JEDI, uh, sort, of a, sort of on the DARPA model. Do you think those kinds of organizations are important to the kind of outcomes you're trying to maximize? I think the more than important, I mean, there is, there is a model that works really well in the United States. And I think a lot of people in other countries are trying to figure out what to do. And there is a model that works. I mean, you mentioned it. I mean, 2010, DARPA invested $20 million in Moderna. Back in the 80s, DARPA invested in something called the internet. Department of Energy invested in the, in the batteries. I mean, we all know these stories and we still haven't replicated this successful model. We, we work with DARPA because they've seen the potential of our way of delivering drugs. And, you know, we are lucky to have the support of, of such a long-term organization. Now, why does it have to be done with a military perspective? That's the key question, right? And that's probably a function of where the funds are and what the big monies are, fine. But what if there was a DARPA that wasn't, at the end of the day, the final intention is to support, um, you know, the military capabilities, right? To, to create an advantage from a military perspective, whether it's about health, whether it's about recovery for troops. What if you had an organization that is able to do it um, with the final intention is that you want to help people that need it the most? <laughs> so I think there is, um, there is some sort of um, strategic thinking to be done, obviously, at the I don't know, the G20 level or whatever level it's, it's appropriate, but there is some mechanism that, um, that are very, at this point, that are very clear that can emerge as, as a success. And, um, you know, if science is there, science is the solution, there is a next step to be done. How do you translate science into innovative techniques and technologies to, to address those, those issues? That's a key challenge for me at this point. We have plenty of science and there would be more and now it's our job to to get people to be excited about starting company based on science and not be afraid of maybe not having a phd not having the technical knowledge you can build a team and i think again we're trying to show that you, you you can build a team that is multidisciplinary that you know it come from different backgrounds and and um Vax is a little bit of an example of that the, the three uh four co-founders were you know, all coming from different fields, um, someone from engineering, mechanical engineering, chemistry, and I came from, you know, the public sector. So I think there is opportunities for, for entrepreneurs to, to work with scientists and they can do it quite effectively. Let's talk about urgency and the urgency of the moment. Obviously, we are still coping not so well with the pandemic. We've had an absolutely awful summer demonstration of the immediacy of climate change. Uh, we're seeing uh, the outbreak of severe food shortages in, in a number of countries. Ethiopia immediately comes to mind and, and so on. So you've got this buildup of urgency of problems and the process you've described quite well is that science and innovation and the translation to practicality has its own logic, its own time frame. It, it moves at the pace it can move and, and you sort of have a feeling that they're out of sync, that the problems are accumulating much faster 
than the solutions. Can we close that urgency gap with, with more money, with more resources? What, is it, what does it take? Yeah, that's it's actually a very interesting question because, yeah, there is a gap. And the only solution is to accelerate, you know, bring the future to today, right? That's the only thing you could do. And how do you do that? How do you bring future technology to today? And I think at this point, you can only do it if we were lucky enough that someone 20 years ago invested in some of those things, right? And there is someone that did invest in some of those things. So I think if we can find those technology that we were lucky enough for whatever reason that someone, some agency, some organization strategically thought about it, now we can kind of, you know, it's a low-hanging fruit because those are almost ready. And if you think about it, all the technology they were using today that are ready today, they were, you know, they started to be invested and investigated 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I think there is one way that, you know, it's like, can we map out what are all the things that are kind of right for usage um, and they're not going to be ready. They're not going to be, you know, you take it from the shelf and they're ready to go. Those are not the typical digital technology that every digital innovation builds on the infrastructure, which is the digital network, right? And then, okay, you're building on that network. What is the next network? What is the next platform? And in our case, you know, we believe that mRNA was is one of them and now it's going to be translated in hundreds of different applications for hundreds of different diseases and hundreds of different things. I mean, not only in the healthcare field, but what if, what about like, you know, for animal health? You know, the next pandemic would probably come from animals. You're having thousands and thousands and thousands of animals in a very small space, and you're gonna have outbreaks, and you're gonna have mutation, and you're gonna have what happened with the swine flu, right? And can we use those technology today that are almost ready to go to get us prepared for those next things. So there is tools that are already available that with a little bit of, you know, incremental investment, a little bit of incremental effort can be accelerated. Also, if you think about acceleration, I mean, what happened with the vaccine approval was an incredible um, stretch, uh, you know, of was like running the 100 meter in, in two seconds, right? Because we cut all the red tape, we cut all the bureaucracy, and the agencies were able to approve a product that is so effective, like no other vaccine is as effective as, as the COVID vaccine, which is incredible. So we can accelerate that, we can accelerate the platform that we already have, and then we just need to start investing in the next platform, because if you're waiting, you're wasting time, right? There is no more time. So 10 years, it seems like a long time, but 10 years to solve, I don't know, Challenges like creating seeds that don't need as much water, creating challenges of creating vaccines for animals so we don't get uh, translation of, of new diseases, um, having platform that we have it at the fingertips and they need some sort of translation into the specific application. So we have those big platforms, now we need to slice them into small pieces and say, okay, what can we do um, to make them more applicable to the next Thing that we are we are facing today. I mean, you talk about climate change, and you know, I was one of those people that when I was at the UN, I was thinking about we need to feed people today. You know, I was a, an economist in the, in the Cambodian office, and 85% of people are farmers, so we needed to find solution to to give them something to eat, right, and to give them some jobs. And climate change felt like really, really far. This was like 2007, 2008, 2009. I was feeling like. I don't want to spend my time thinking about climate change. Like I need to get something to these people today. And then 10 years later, 
here we are. <laughs> we haven't invested in those things because there is there is a lack of, of you know, there, there was a lack of investment in, the, in this field. So I feel uh, is a long answer to, to your question, but I think there is there is ways of, of accelerating those technology and building on those platforms that already have been proven successful. One of the challenges we face almost everywhere today is growing social and economic inequality. And one of the risks of intense innovation is that it exacerbates inequality. I'm thinking of uh, people who are more worried about their rocket ship and, and high-end cars than they are perhaps about other things. How do you capture the benefits of innovation without putting social cohesion at risk, or put it positively, how do you capture the benefits of technology and improve social economic equality? Yeah, I am, I am worried about that. And I think it's a function of what technology and for whom are you building for, right? What we're building technologies, um, they can really be used by as many people as possible. Um, and in the in the biotech field, I mean, sadly, we're seeing this going in the wrong direction. I mean, everyone is trying to make drugs, the most expensive drug as possible, right? This is the biotech field. I mean, you want to make one drug that costs $1 million rather than making 1 million vaccine that costs $1 each, right? And that's exactly what people want. That's what investors criticize sometimes, companies like us, because it's very hard to make a million vaccine and sell them for $1. So when we got money from the Gates Foundation, the Gates Foundation gave us around six and a half million dollars over the years, even a little bit more than that. And they challenged us to say, make a product for one dollar, actually with five dollars. And we're like, man, this is impossible. There is no way. But like, they gave us money to do it. They gave us money to try. And we build a platform. We're not to that point yet. We're not to that cost yet. But we're not building for a million dollar dose drug. We're building for something cheap, and we learn a ton from that, from a scientific and, and engineering perspective. They, they said, "Well, maybe you know you can deliver, you can do something that is, is lower cost." And they pushed us so hard to try to get to those lower costs. And and so here comes again the role of the public sector or the or the nonprofit sector to push companies in that direction to say, you know, build your platform. You can be very successful in different areas. But then at the same time, you need to think about designing a product that can be used by as many people as possible in the most you know, comprehensive way as possible. So I think there is a problem of inequality that is exacerbated by obviously by the, the purely capitalistic approach of maximizing profits and maximizing. But if you're purely a private company, that's kind of what you do, right? You want to be successful for your shareholder. Now, if your investors are public organizations, like in our case, I think it's a little different. It's a little different and it's changing a lot. You see a lot of private companies trying to do the right thing, trying to focus on, on building products that can be, you know, really changing uh, the way that these inequality are addressed. Because if you can make a vaccine that doesn't need to be refrigerated, if you make a vaccine that can be administered by maybe like not nurses, but volunteers, you're actually leveling the playing field by giving access to, to more drugs and, and, and vaccine to people. And the same thing for, you know, food waste is the same thing. You're trying to making sure that someone in a small market doesn't get his crops going bad and now he can, he can sell it. So you're, you're addressing some of those fundamental issues. And I feel I speak a lot about this, but, you know, 
Voxes is trying to solve one very small problem in a very big chain of events, right? You're trying, your, your variable is access to vaccine. And now you have all these independent variables. There is hundreds of them. There is lack of refrigeration is one. There is wars. There is lack of money. There is people that don't want to do it. There is hundreds of reasons why vaccines don't get to people that need it. And now we're saying a group of people, relatively small, with a relatively small amount of funding, with a relatively small amount of time, can solve that problem and can remove that variable completely from that equation. Now, other people will have to address the other ones, right? We're not going to be able to make vaccine accessible to everyone, but at least we're removing one set, one variable from that equation, and now slowly the society will have to address all of them. So I feel technology can do that, can remove that, that X hundred <laughs> from that equation, and now we are... We are ready to, to move on to the next one. And I think if in our lives, at least from for, for, for my perspective, if I dedicate my life to solve a couple of those problems, I think I would be pretty happy with myself and what I, what I did and how I spent my time. I had another question, but that was such a fabulous answer. I want to stop right there. Um, absolutely fascinating. You have to promise we'll talk again once you get into and maybe a little deep into human trials, because I'm wildly curious and hopeful for that success because clearly removing that particular variable would be dramatic. So thank you for this conversation and thanks for what you're trying to do. Thank you for having me and it was a pleasure to, to speak to you. Anna. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.